Hey, this is Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode three of the North Meet South web podcast. Hey there, welcome back to the North Meets South web podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Sandy Metz and her article, The Wrong Abstraction. We're going to be talking about a little bit about Laravel Valet, Mac versus Windows for development in general, and then a new package called Mail Thief from Titan. Okay, so earlier this week I was reading some of some posts on Twitter and came across this article called The Wrong Abstraction by Sandy Metz. And we had actually talked about her a little bit, I think, the last episode briefly. We talked about the, what is it, the Pooter book? Is that right? It's yeah, a that's practical the one. Obj- yeah, practical object-oriented design in Ruby. So she had an article out there called The Wrong Abstraction, which I believed was published earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I had some really interesting ideas uh, about when to abstract and when it's beneficial versus when it's not. Did you have any takeaways from that article? Yeah. I mean, again, this is something that I look at and I, I'm reading it going, I've done that. I've uh, I've made that, that same decision and then I've often come back to regret it later on. For me, I guess the benefit of regretting that kind of decision is that I've been the sole developer for a couple of years. So it means that when I come around to a piece of code that no longer makes sense to me, I know I've only got myself to blame and I'm the only one that's going to fix it. So in that regard, I think it's better to be able to understand when you're going to come across this particular uh, issue in, in deciding when to abstract and when to duplicate code. The sooner that you can actually see that pattern emerging the sooner you can sort of catch yourself and and i guess make sure that you don't do that and cause yourself issues down the track yeah and i think the premise of her article is kind of that early abstraction or trying to abstract to objects or even methods sometimes too early can be damaging to the project down the line and so the idea and kind of like her catchphrase in the article is that we should prefer duplication over abstraction or over the wrong abstraction, not over abstraction in general, but over the wrong abstraction. And I think this kind of caused a lot of stir at the conference, maybe on Twitter as well. People don't necessarily like to hear this because one of the concepts that's really driven home a lot in programming is this idea of keeping things dry, right? That's the acronym is dry, D-R-Y, meaning don't repeat yourself. So we're kind of taught as programmers, anytime you see duplicated code in your code base, it should be abstracted to something else. And her idea is that if you don't know the, the, the use cases well enough in order to be able to abstract that in a way that's going to be extendable in the future, a lot of times you're going to end up hurting yourself because you tie yourself to an abstraction that may not be the correct one. So you have a programmer, and especially this happens in multiple teams, right? You had mentioned that it Sometimes it doesn't hurt as much when you're the only programmer, but when you have multiple programmers looking at the same pieces of code, it can it can tend to get out of control really quickly. So you have the first programmer that sees a set of duplicated code, and so they ab- abstract it or extract it into another method or into an object, and it works perfectly for the single use case that they have it set up for. But when this new requirement appears, the abstraction that they've created doesn't fit perfectly but it almost fits perfectly, right? So instead of rethinking the problem, the second programmer says, well, I'll just, I'll just add a couple conditionals in here, kind of like cram it in there and make it fit. 
and then you have you know another programmer comes on and it, it this continues you know ad nauseum right all the way all the way down the line it just once you've abstracted it you kind of feel like you're tied to it because of all the work that was put into it previously so this idea of just taking the time to rethink the problem and redo the abstraction there's there's a lot of you almost feel like developer guilt kind of throwing away what's been done before Whereas if you wouldn't have abstracted that previously, if you just kind of left things in line and, and maybe duplicated in, in just a couple places and maybe used the rule of three, right? Where once you have a set of things that you see happening two or three times, then you look to abstract it. You're going to have a much better idea of what abstraction you need to use than you would if you just try to abstract it at the first pass. Yeah, exactly right. And if you're going to start abstracting at the first pass, you don't know which direction you're going to take. You, you're basically making assumptions about the future of the code base that may never eventuate or, or that you might take it in the wrong direction. And yeah, that's where Sandy starts talking about the sunk cost fallacy, where once you start adding these extra levels of, of complication through variables and things like that, that the next person that looks at that code is going to go, well, it was it's hard to read. So it must have been a lot of work to come up with this. And then so you end up leaving it in there and then you start tacking more onto it. Yeah. And some people would call this crystal ball programming, right? Where you try and make everything possible, extendable and configurable. And you don't necessarily do yourself any favors when you do that because you end up with tons of technical debt, right? Because to make one small change, a lot of times you've tried to make it easier for yourself down the road. But a lot of times those things that you've kind of programmed in there don't fit the use cases that you end up with later on down the road. So rather than trying to predict what you're going to need the next time a feature request is made, you basically just program it or develop it for what your needs are at this moment, right? Make it the easiest to read, etc. So she gives this idea that you reintroduce the duplication in your code, which is, again, it's, it's totally against everything that we've been taught as programmers. So Sandy says in the article, her article kind of goes on, to say that the fastest way forward in a lot of these instances is to go back and to reintroduce the duplication into your code base, which again is a completely against everything we've been taught as programmers. But to kind of inline the abstracted code into all of the callers, delete all the parts that aren't relevant anymore, and then once you've got it all inlined and you can kind of see the new feature that you've added and the original features that were there, you can now have a better clearer picture of what the correct abstraction needs to be instead of just trying to tack on additional features to something that isn't isn't programmed correctly in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And I think the great quote that comes out of the article is that instead of thinking about having to preserve the investment that you've made in the code, it's you've got to make that realization that the code made sense for a while, but maybe we've learned everything we can from it and it's time to reevaluate and refactor that code into something that makes more sense for our current use case. Yeah, absolutely. And it is it is always sad, even when it was me that developed it the first time, you feel like you had it working so perfectly and that at the time it was exactly what you wanted. And so there is sort of this sadness to leave behind something that you worked on previously that you know uh, worked perfectly when it was when it was designed, but has just outgrown itself. Absolutely. And I think this is another reason why testing is so important. If you don't have tests to back up what the functionality of this code that you've written is, you're going to have a much harder time convincing yourself to go back and redo it because a lot of times you don't remember all of the things that it was that it was doing. So it becomes a huge drudgery to go back through and try and remember 
all the pieces and all the parts and how they fit together, uh, you know, before you can actually move forward. Okay, so let's move on to the next topic. I think uh, on the on the list was valet here. So Laravel valet is something that Taylor Otwell and Adam Wathen worked together on. And Michael, why don't you tell us what that is? So Laravel Valet is essentially a really lightweight wrapper around a couple of different uh, macOS only utilities. So using a tool called Caddy, which basically serves as a very lightweight uh, HTTP2 compliant server. And the benefit for that, aside from being able to use HTTP2, is that will also give you a green padlock uh, SSL if you want to want to have that functionality as well. Um, it also then wraps over DNS masks so that that utility is used to then route your local DNS requests. So something like northmeetsouth.dev to a directory on your computer in a similar way to what Homestead would previously do. But this way you're using about seven megabytes of RAM and whatever disk space you need to have that code base on your computer instead of pulling down VirtualBox and then grabbing a vagrant image of Homestead, which is you know another 20 gig and then using two gig of RAM for that all the time. This just lets you get up and running really quickly and, and get to work on coding. I must admit, I've been using Homestead up until now, but I'm only on 120 gig flash uh, memory, well, sorry, a flash drive in my MacBook. So that that limited space is precious. So giving Valet a go, so far it's uh, it's been ticking along pretty nicely. Yeah, and one of the really cool things about Valet is that this is not a Laravel-only project. This works for multiple sort of PHP apps that you might try and develop on your machine, right? Like WordPress or Statomic or just regular static sites even. It works for all of them. Laravel Valet works for all of these things. So it is a MAMP replacement even really. I, I've, I've used Homestead for sure, but before I used Homestead, I used MAMP. And uh, I've pretty much been able to replace all of my MAMP sites with Valet. And one of my favorite things is that I don't have to set up a developer URL like on my machine, right? So I don't have to specify, hey, this app needs to be app.dev, which you used to have to do on MAMP. And it actually was a pro feature. You'd, you'd be able to go into their UI and say, I want this directory to be resolved by going to app.dev. And now, whatever you specify as your folder for where all of your valet projects are going to live or for where all of your programming projects are going to live in general, it just automatically maps them. So if you created the new folder called check-in app, it would automatically be resolved on your computer locally as check-in app.dev. So that's been really neat. They have drivers that, for like I said, for WordPress, for a couple others, and then you can actually make your own drivers, although I think that most of them are probably taken care of at this point. Yeah, I think most of the different frameworks and, and PHP sort of, you know, WordPress and things like that, they're all kind of catered to, they all follow a fairly similar directory structure. So they're all using public or htdocs or something like that. The drivers are basically just there to identify, I guess, based on that directory structure, what kind of application is being served and then uh, being able to, I guess, bootstrap and, and serve that from localhost nice and easily. Yeah, I think what they said is that the driver essentially allows Valet to be able to act as some of the Nginx setup. So like for Laravel specifically, right, you always serve from the public directory. So the driver will essentially look at the directory structure of the project that you're working on. In the case of Laravel, it will look to see if it has an artisan file. And if it does, then it knows that it's a PHP, I'm sorry, that it's a Laravel installation and it'll go ahead and serve from the public directory. 
So pretty interesting how that works. Really, really cool. And then one of the other things that's super nice is we mentioned this earlier that you can do, it doesn't require that you have a database set up, but to pull one in is as easy as since it's Mac only, if you have homebrew installed, you just do brew install MariaDB or brew install Redis or brew install what other other piece that you want to use. And it's kind of, uh, you just add whatever you want and then start it up and you're all set. Yeah, definitely. And it, and it makes things much easier. And I don't really mind running, you know, just MySQL, especially now with things like Docker. If you really want to get pedantic about not installing things on your on your main machine, you can install it in a Docker container and things like that. But the fact that it's that it's all there and it's just easy to set up is is really good for me. There may be some developers out there who cry foul over using something like Valet in development and something completely different in production. I guess as long as your tests are uh, going to be showing that your code is working, for most cases, unless you're doing anything really uh, specific, you know, if you're firing up maybe multiple queue workers or things like that, developing using Valet and then transitioning even to something like uh, a Forge provision server is going to be a fairly smooth process for most cases, I think. I agree. The other thing that I've thought or found that's been really, really useful is if you have two projects that kind of need to be running at the same time in order to be able to communicate back and forth, if you're doing sort of like a microservices or even if you just have a, maybe you have an API over on one side that you're calling and another app is kind of consuming that API and you just want to have them both up and and running it so you can test back and forth at the same time, just do some, you know, nothing unit test wise or 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 otherwise but just be able to have the two apps talk it's valet is perfect for that because you can have you can have them running at the same time with homestead that's not necessarily the case you have your virtual box up and uh uh well actually let me think about that is that the case or is that not do you know can you have multiples running on the same time on homestead yeah, you can have multiples. Okay. Um, I mean, it's there's a lot more manual configuration in doing that. With Valet, again, the whole point is to just get yourself up and running. So as you mentioned, having a directory called app A would load as app A.dev in the browser and having a directory called app B would load as app B.dev in the browser. And that will work straight away out of the box. With Homestead, there's a bit more to it. You either have to modify your Homestead configuration, the homestead.yaml file, or you need to then go and set up your own DNS mask configuration or edit the hosts file every time you add a new site. So That's yeah. correct. The, you know what the I was thinking that- of is I, I was thinking I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. The thing I was thinking of is when you do if you're doing like PHP artisan serve, it's where if you just pull up a box or you can't have multiples right. of those running at the same time. That's what I was thinking. My mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Not without setting up multiple ports, yeah. Yeah, so with Homestead, you can have multiples running, but with if you do PHP Artisan Serve or something like that, yeah, you can't have multiples running, which is always a pain. Um, and the other thing that I've found that has been really, really useful is that it comes with ngrok installed as well. Have you used that at all, or do you know what that is? I do know what it is. I haven't had a chance to use it yet. Yeah, so it's great for testing webhooks and things like that. I actually had an event recently that I had set up uh, at Picatick, which is the same provider that Laracon was using to sell tickets this year. And I basically needed to listen for when a new ticket had been purchased. And they didn't have the ability yet to, uh, they don't have necessarily an API, 
but they do have they do have web hooks. So I, I needed to listen for that web hook on my local and check to make sure that it was doing what it needed to. And so all you have to do in order to share a site uh, on the web is you just say valet share and we'll actually set you up an ngrok URL that is publicly accessible. So you can then take that ngrok URL and you can paste it into the webhooks config on Picatix site or whatever and then just do a little test registration and you'll get the webhook right back to your local machine which is pretty incredible. It's always been a pain in the neck to try to test that stuff out or to set that up in the past and this makes it really easy to do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, things like Twitter authentication, for example, you could run that on local host because that isn't talking to your Twitter server is not talking to your server directly. It's it's sending you a HTTP redirect to go back to obviously an address that you've got access to. But as soon as you want to share that with someone and say, hey, can you have a look at this? Does this work okay? That's where it starts to break down. So that's where using Valet's share functionality really breaks that barrier down and makes it you know, one command to, for me to go, hey, Jake, can you have a look at this? And you can look at that and you're accessing my... Sh- you know, you're accessing that development site on my machine rather than me having to go set up a staging environment on a on a Forge server or something like that just so that I can show you some code. And a lot of the time, it might actually take you longer to provision that staging environment and push the code up and get it all, all up and running than it would to just say, you know, valet share and then it's done. So, and the fact that, that Taylor and Adam kind of put this together in just a few days and and the level of simplicity that it does give to anyone who's getting up and running for the first time, it's its pretty incredible. Yeah, it's times like these where I'm really happy to be using a Mac. Being that this is a Mac-only application, I feel like that's the case for, and this is actually why I switched over to a Mac, was, you know, it was completely for development purposes. And so I can't imagine trying to set something up like this on Windows. I just feel like I remember just trying to set anything up, whether it be something that uh, something as simple as setting up a new path for your like your command line environment. It, it was, I remember it just being a huge pain in Windows. And I know Taylor developed on Windows for a long time. I don't know how he did that, but <laughs> what is there anything else? I know we kind of had on our list today that we wanted to talk about using Mac versus using Windows in a development environment. Um, what are some of the things that you've, I know you said it's been a while for you since you've used Windows, but what are some of the challenges you faced when you did? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been the better part of a decade. So it's probably 2008, I think, the last time that I used Windows. So it might be a lot better now. But just looking on the Laracast forums and just seeing the kind of issues that, that people have, not just with getting, say, Laravel up and running in MAMP, but if they're trying to get Homestead running, sometimes they have issues getting VirtualBox up and running, there's issues around, you know, Hyper-V and some kind of virtualization compatibility that does and doesn't work on some some people's computers. But then you have VirtualBox and then Vagrant and things like that. And I, I would think that Windows is a fairly GUI kind of heavy environment. So some of that stuff that does, does need you to start having some understanding of Linux environments kind of gets a bit tricky at some at times, I guess. I, I was trying to set up for my brother computer running Windows 10 the other day and I had all kinds of issues because I'm running a Mac. I don't... <laughs> I had to find a DVD drive to, you know, put the the disk image on. That didn't work. I ended up having to install Vista and working my way up. So, you know, even just getting Windows onto a machine can be a bit tricky sometimes. Yeah, I know that one of the big challenges for me was when I was first starting with some of this stuff was I had a friend who was a developer that I was kind of trying to get into Laravel. 
And I had been using a Mac for a while and was pretty comfortable with it and was, you know, installing Laravel. A lot of the installation commands and, and things like that are assuming that you're on some sort of, you know, a Linux sort of system. So when you have these commands that you couldn't run in Windows, it seemed like every instruction was requiring that you had some sort of Linux box and the fact that Windows couldn't run any of those was a huge barrier, just a massive barrier. You didn't have a bash prompt installed by default on Windows, and so you'd have to figure out how to install one of those. You don't have Git installed, so you got to install that. You certainly don't have conveniences like something like Homebrew, like you have on Mac. So there's just a lot of things that you had to overcome in order to be able to even get started with Laravel. I know that Windows is kind of migrating more towards a Linux... I don't even know how to say that. Linux... In environment i'm not sure if that's right yeah but they've got a lot of like if you use powershell uh which is a, a windows thing then you have available to you a lot of the linux commands that you would have you know a lot of the things that you're familiar with on the command line as far as navigating around and and creating folders removing folders a lot of things that you would have available to you in a, in a regular bash prompt yeah um so it has gotten better like you said but it's still i don't think it's as easy yeah i mean microsoft has been on a real push i guess in the last 12 months for open source and i haven't i must admit i haven't looked too much into it but they did announce that later this year they're going to be integrating ubuntu into windows 10 so you will have a, a native bash prompt on your windows 10 machine so things might improve in the future but i mean having said all this there are it's, it's not that it doesn't run. I just don't think it's quite as simple as getting it up and running on Mac just from a from a purely observational perspective. When I was looking at the Valet video on Laracast, I think one of the comments on that video, uh, I'll try and link it in the show notes, was for some utility called Laragon, which yeah, I I've guess is, is some kind of Windows-ish equivalent of, of Valet. But I'm, I've... I'm sure Taylor has said that, you know, if it happens, it happens, but it won't be him that does it. That said, he was tweeting about finding a, a Windows Mac, uh, sorry, a Windows laptop for development, I think, on Twitter earlier today. So who knows what might happen in the near future? Yeah, I think, I wonder what he decided on. I know there was a lot of people who had opinions about a good Windows machine to try. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if he landed on one or not, but uh, yeah, there's definitely some good Windows machines out there. I just... I won't be using one yeah. for a while. <laughs> the last thing that we kind of wanted to talk about today was this new package that Titan Co. came out with just the other day called Mail Thief. And this makes it, it seems like this is a package that's going to make testing your emails way more trivial than it used to be. Uh, I remember Jeffrey Way had practically, I think, two or three lessons maybe on figuring out how you could test mail. And this package makes it seems to make it pretty easy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it leverages behind a, a facade the ability to hijack whatever active uh, mail implementation you've got running in your test environment and essentially allows you to make assertions against the recipients or the senders of that address. It allows you to make assertions against the body content of the email and things like that. So whereas... Previously, you could probably look at, you know, was the mail send event fired, for example. Now you can actually inspect that you were sending what you're expecting to send, that say your your blade variables were filled out properly, that you didn't have any typos, that, you know, I'm sure everyone's received at some point or seen at some point the email that came from some big company that was to dear 
angle bracket, angle bracket, subscriber and, yeah. and things like that. So, you know, I think this and I think Adam also touched on it in his book, Refactoring to Collections, that, you know, this this is probably a much better way of of going about making assertions against not just that your email was sent, but what was sent in that email or what would be sent in that email in a production environment. Yeah, I think a lot of times the challenge is determining that it's being sent to the correct person. A lot of times, like if you're sending an invitation or something like that. So if you have a user that has added a collaborator to their project or something, and then they need to send an invite to that person to join the project, you want to make sure that the invite that you're sending is going to the correct address. So being able to test that really easily, uh, you can test who it's going to, the BCC or CC, any of that stuff. You can test that really easily. And, and like you said previously, maybe the way that the only way that I've really tested mail in the in the past is to to essentially use the facade check to see mail should receive send method or maybe you make it into a job called send welcome email or send invite email or however you want to call that and then you can just check to say that to see that the job was dispatched instead of actually checking all of the all of the details and bits and pieces so you just kind of say hey was that email sent was that was that invitation email sent as long as it was I'm just going to say that it was good and then you might test that out test that on its own figure out some way to not necessarily look at the mail but maybe inspect some of the uh, parameters that you are sending to to the job that you're dispatching but this certainly does make it easier and you can essentially run a whole list of things it will capture all of the emails and then you can filter through to make sure that it sent emails to whatever recipients you wanted so you could you could send three invites and, and check to make sure that of those invites that were sent, at least one of them contained the email that you were looking for or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of a sort of barbaric approach to testing given how much we've you know advanced with all the different ways that you can actually test code to go with email, you know, was it sent? Yeah, that'll, you know, that's good enough. There are utilities like MailTrap, which are great, but it still means that you're doing some level of manual testing that for every email that you send to that service, you then have to go in and have a look, you know, were, were the variables filled out properly? Does it contain the content that I expected? Did the HTML come out properly and things like that? Being able to automate that process and to be able to go, you know, I definitely know it was sent to this recipient and it did contain the right pre-filled information in the email that gives you assurances that your code is actually doing what you're expecting it to do, not just that it sent the email. No, you're absolutely correct. And one that I've used past uh, in the past has been Mailcatcher. So it sets up essentially a local SMTP server on your machine and then intercepts any emails and lets you display them. And so it's essentially like MailTrap, but it's local, which is always handy to just have it locally. And so I've used that in the past and you're absolutely correct. Exactly what you said is what I what I end up doing, right? Is I run the code, maybe even run a test, but then I have to go check that mail trap kind of list to make sure that I got the piece that I wanted and that the subject looked like what it was supposed to. And, you know, maybe something like that is still valuable for kind of when you're prototyping, when when you're just trying to figure out what you want the email to look like. And then, and then once you've kind of got it set in, not set in stone, but set you know, for what you're looking for, then you can write the test and then you don't, you don't have to look at mail trap again or, or mail, uh, mail catcher to make sure that that happens. You've, you've got a test set up to run that. Yeah, definitely. And just having to, to boot it up each time. And, you know, it's just a hassle. And it seems like, as I said, with all of the, the advances that we've made until now, 
for that one thing to not work and not work well, you know, it's nice that that we've got guys out there that are always looking at ways to improve everyone's workflow. And I think that's one of the great things about the Laravel community is that there's always someone out there that's that's got a problem that that they've solved in a in a really genius kind of way and they go here's what we've done i want everyone you know everyone can use it because it helps everyone yeah for sure there's a lot of companies who would keep that as like a competitive edge to be able to say we have this thing that nobody else has so we're just going to kind of hoard it to ourselves titan is definitely not that way and they've been huge contributors to the laravel community there's a couple other trying to think there's one in louisville that actually has made a lot of packages as well. I remember before we had Scheduler and Laravel, they had something called Dispatcher and Datus is what it is. And they were actually bought by another company, but they're another company that had a lot of packages for Laravel that really helped to contribute to the Laravel community early on. So thanks guys for doing that. Much appreciated by the rest of us. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, No, I think that's pretty much covered off uh, everything this week. Yeah, well, thanks you guys so much for listening. We did get a couple good reviews on iTunes, so much appreciated. Next week, we hope to have our first guest on, and so that should be exciting for us. Hopefully get some experience from kind of the front end side of things. I think is what we're going to be talking about next week. So be sure to join us. And until then, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to our show. If you have any questions or comments, or you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at NorthSouthAudio or email podcast at NorthMeetSouth.audio. We're also on iTunes, and your ratings and reviews really help us to promote the show and let others know we're doing a good job. Show notes for this episode can be found at NorthMeetSouth.audio forward slash three.